Welcome to Adversarial Learning. Keep on churning till the butter comes. Keep on churning till the butter comes. Keep on pumping, make the butter flow. Wipe off the paddle and churn some more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adversarial Learning. This is Joel. I'm here, as always, with Andrew. Hello. And our guest uh, this week or this month or this quarter, whatever it is that we uh, <laughs> make a new episode every, um, is Carl Gold. Uh, Carl is the chief data scientist at Zora. Uh, that's Quora, but with a Z. Um, and he's also writing a book called Fighting Churn with Data. Um, and we're excited to have him here to talk about churn and data and writing a book and a bunch of other things. So uh, welcome, Carl. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for thanks for being here. So uh, my, my, my first question is, uh, you know, if you Google your name, like the top two results are like doctors and one of them has been uh, lost his license for using drugs. <laughs> I actually knew that I know that I'm not the top Carl Gold and I do remember one of them being a doctor somewhere. I didn't hear about the the sad news about his license. Well, so there, there's two doctors. One is a neurologist at Stanford, and I think he's on the up and up. And one is an anesthesiologist, and I think Illinois, and he's the one who got uh, disbarred or whatever it's called for doctors. Um, and then apparently he was buying other people's urine to try and pass drug tests, and that didn't didn't work either. But anyway, and this uh, all came up in a Google search. That, it's like the first two results of I Google your name. You... But anyway, my question was going to be, what's your plan to get yourself above these people on Google? <laughs> well, write an awesome book, hopefully. So, um, good. That's a, that's a, that's a good strategy. I, I, I can't say that it necessarily works, but I'm the only <laughs> Cholger, so it, I don't really have that. I, I have other You're problems, the same like competition problems. Well, no, I do. I, I have uh, I have competition for like stupid things I've done in the past that I want to knock off the first page. But I'm sort of competing mm -hmm. with myself, so it's a, it's a slightly different game. So, um, it's like track and field. Yeah, it, it is like track and field. So. Um, fighting churn with data. So for the uninitiated, what is churn? Churn is when people quit uh, any service where you want them to not quit, basically. It's most, you know, it's most clearly defined what churn is when you have an actual subscription, which is, you know, like a contract to continue a service. Yep. But you can also, you know, you can consider people to churn from anything uh, even if it's free or if it's like in-app purchases, you know, if someone's been playing your game and making a purchase every month for a while and then they disappear, that's what you can call a churn uh, for that kind of service. And Go ahead. I'll, I'll say it comes from, for those who don't know all this already, uh, the background is it comes from a metric called the churn rate is the original use of churn in this context. And the, you know, in English, churn means to mix something up. And the idea is that every month or quarter or what have you, a certain number of your computer, a certain number of your customers are going to quit. And then you have to replace them with new customers. So it saps your growth. And the effect is that you're kind of turning over your customer base uh, over time. So they call it the churn rate. Uh, just that's just a measure of the percentage of people that quit in a given time period. Um, but if you're not in the business, you may be surprised that churn can also now be a noun. You can say, oh, that customer is a churn, or give me the list of all the churns from last quarter. 
and it Ooh, can also I don't believe yeah that. definitely <laughs> it's also a verb too you can be churning or the customer churned or yeah. I'm fine with yeah. that but nouning it doesn't and that, make sense. that noun doesn't sit well with me we there's, definitely there's do it we definitely have lists of the churns and the churn report and <laughs> and we even ref- we, we definitely even call the customers churns we're just like oh oh that Ugh, oh that yeah. their churn can you not do that just for us? Sure, maybe? on this call, but everyone in the business is doing it. Okay. How did how, how oh, did you get interested okay. in churn? Honestly, it started because a friend of mine asked me to analyze it, um, and this was in my at my pre Zora startup. Um, this, you know, someone brought it to my attention as a problem that a lot of people were having, and I guess this was not that long ago, maybe two thousand thirteen. Uh, was the first time that I heard of churn. Um, and so at that company, we worked on a bunch of churns, a bunch of churn problems, I should say. And, then at, Zora, at, yeah, and then at Zora, uh, where I was in a, a similar role, we also have a lot of... Zora is a company that manages other people's subscription products, basically. So if you want, if you okay. want to sell a subscription product... Um, you can use Zora to run your business. Um, and we tend to cater to people with uh, more complicated subscriptions. So if your subscription is just to charge everyone $9.99 a month, you probably should not use Zora. But what we support is if you have a, a more complicated subscription plan with like you know three levels, like free, regular, and premium tier, And then you also want to give people discounts sometimes or coupon codes. And it all gets pretty Mm -hmm. complicated, uh, you know, once you start making a complicated plan and giving out discounts. And that's where you would probably want to use a tool like Zora to to manage it. So we have like a thousand customers, all of which are subscription uh, businesses. And because, well, they're all subscription businesses, they're very concerned about churn. It's one of their you know, most important metrics. And it's, well, like I said, it's a drag on growth. If, if your customers are leaving uh, and you're not doing anything about it, then you can do better. So that, that, that makes me think of a question that I always ask myself, which is that GitHub has like a free plan and they have a pro plan, which is seven bucks a month, which has all the same features as the free plan at this point. And so why the hell am I paying seven bucks a month for the GitHub pro plan? And I, 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 I don't have an answer for that. I have to, I'm in the same boat. And I, I actually, it was, it was popped up to my face the other day because I tried to, uh, I tried to downgrade and I was stuck in the, in the downgrade funnel and they said, oh, you can't do it yet because one of your repos has more than three uh, contributors. And so I gave up. So I'm still paying seven bucks. Well, that's what you're paying for then, th- more than three contributors <laughs> for one thing. Which, which It's on a dead project. It's a paper that's done. Uh, which repo has more than three contributors? <coughs> some some uh, paper we did about uh, Mahout and Samsara and the speed-ups. Oh. So it's like a year-old uh, repo, and we haven't touched it mm. since. Well, every product has to give you value at each level of their plan. And if you don't find the value, that's when you're going to churn. The value is if I don't have to click three more times and I just have to pay $7 a month. It's literally, well, switching, I'm not saying it makes sense. Switch, Carl. Switching cost is actually part of churn too. Cause if you have a high cost to switch to a different service, however, you know, you register three that clicks. cost, then that'll keep you on mm-hmm. too. Yep. Three clicks. 
And, yeah, it and doesn't so, sound too bad. <laughs> and so what made you want to write a book about churn? Basically, I got to a point where I had done it enough times. Uh, I had a system and I had learned from many, many mistakes that I made. And I was just, you know, having one of those moments where like, God, I wish I could, you know, write a book and go back in time and give it to myself. And then I wouldn't have, you know, screwed up so much. Um, mm -hmm. And that I said, you know, I should write that book because no one else, you know, no one else has done it. So I don't know for that, based on that foolish, you know, partly a do-gooding impulse and partly, of course, you know, uh, helping my career by, you know, becoming an authority on something that people care about uh, is usually considered a career advancing move. Or a career pigeonholing yeah, move. And if, yeah, it could be that too. You're the right? churn guy forever. Yeah, you're, you're a churn scientist. It's definitely occurred to me, but I'll, I'll worry about that, you know, when it happens. Let's like kind of get accepted as an authority on something first. Yeah, I, that's fair. That's probably uh, probably marginally better than my reason for writing a book, which was, I don't, I don't remember what, I, part of it was like, I wanted to be famous as a data scientist. And then part of it was, I wanted to be a published author. And then part of it was, it was all like self-aggrandizing stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, well, I've got, all like those, I've got all those reasons too. And I'd like to help people avoid my mistakes if possible. And I, ha I have, that's a noble, that's a noble reason. Yeah, I have some other reasons in the background. Maybe we'll get to that once I explain more about what it's about, I guess. Yeah. Well, what, what is it? Well, oh. it's about fighting turn with data, but why don't you tell us what it's about? Okay. Well, okay. How, I'll put it like this. I mean, Many people in data science have analyzed churn. Um, it's almost, it's considered like a stock problem, you know, where, you know, oh, everyone's done a churn problem. And if you go to various benchmark, you know, uh, you know, benchmark data repositories, you'll find examples of churn as a machine learning problem. What I found doing it um, many times is that Actually, if a data scientist is in an organization and they say, okay, I'm going to do something on churn, they typically make a predictive model uh, that, you know, will predict who's going to churn. But what I've seen again and again, sadly, is that often businesses don't really take advantage of those models or they may even just ignore them and say, okay, that's nice data scientist. I'm glad you can predict churn. Um, you say it's accurate, but whatever. But no one ends up using the model. Um, and the data scientists might think that that's like a conspiracy against them. Oh, these people don't appreciate data science and stuff. But actually what I realized after going through that a couple of times is the problem is actually when it comes to interventions to reduce churn. Because churn, you know, you're not solving anything if you just predict who's going to churn. You actually have to reduce the rate at which people churn through interventions. And the problem right. there is that churn has no one-size-fits-all solution um, at any company that I've ever seen. So if all you do is flag the churn risks, it's not really usable by the people who need to intervene and actually do something about churn. It's not like spam filtering or image categorization where if you apply the label, you know what to do. Um, Mm -hmm. You really need to get to the, the drivers of churn and also to put it into 
uh, a format that um, other people in the organization can use. So the other thing I realized, and this is really the main theme of the book, the book is actually really about feature engineering and making uh, great uh, customer metrics, to put it in like a business language, uh, to make great customer metrics that are really related to who churns and who stays engaged. Because what I saw doing these churn analyses is the way it usually works is finance will already have decided on some customer metrics, or maybe the customer support or success will have some kind of customer metrics. And they're going to give those metrics to the data scientists, and the data scientists will be like, okay, that's the the inputs for my churn model. Um, But the thing that I realized is that a lot of times those customer metrics are not well-designed because the people who made them, well, they probably don't know too much about feature engineering and, and metric design. Um, and often they use a political process to come up with the metrics or, you know, a brainstorming session. And that's how they decide on uh, what the customer metrics would be. And then the data scientist is pretty much stuck with those. Well, if you follow the script that I went through before realizing there was a better way. Um, and the better way really is for the data scientist to get really involved in the metric design because to really make great metrics for your customers, which everyone understands and also which are objectively predictive of churn and retention, you need the skills of a data scientist, which is you know a little math, some programming, sensitivity to data issues. So, 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 like, what's a, what's an example of the kind of metrics that a data scientist would come up with, but that a, a product person might not? Well, the the metric, the types of metrics are generally going to be similar that most people come up with, and it's more in the the science and attention to detail where a data scientist will do better. But I'll make some examples. You know, customer metrics start out with simple things like just counting logins or counting actions, but how many logins per month or how many video viewed per month um, are some basic metrics, which pretty much, well, hopefully most organizations would think of stuff like that. Um, But then what they don't do is actually check how well those metrics are related to churn and retention. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that can give you guidance on what other metrics to try. And then there's a lot of nuances too. So for example, many people will say, okay, let's measure this, you know, videos viewed per month or per, you know, week or something, but they don't always choose an appropriate time scale to measure it. I've seen that many times where, you know, if it's a rare event you're trying to measure, well, you should use a longer window to observe that. And oftentimes people don't think of those kind of, you know, important details um, but the more interesting metrics, and this is a big theme of the book. You mean, you mean like for just to, to put it in concrete terms, like you had uh, you had trouble viewing a video and if you're not looking three days ahead, you might miss somebody canceling because they didn't rage quit that day, but it, it, took, them, it took them a few days to cancel. Is that what you mean by window? Yeah, well, there's a window. For any, for any measurement of a customer, you're going to define some window over which you measure it. Um, like typically the last month, well, it depends on the nature of the product. If it's a product of an annual subscription for businesses like Zora, you would typically make per year metrics, like what's your activities in the last year. And I generally take an approach 
I mean, you kind of referenced this a little bit in your question, but I generally approach it from the point of view that the propensity to churn or renew is something that builds up over time because that's how products deliver value. And people often have kind of hypotheses like, oh, maybe if this one thing happens, then that'll drive someone away. But I don't really believe that that's how you know, churn works. And I, I've never seen a convincing data-driven example to support that there can be just like one incident of some really bad thing and that'll cause a churn. Usually what, what about, happens, what, what, what what about, about all the people, people who are what trying about... to cancel their uh, Blizzard accounts because of what Blizzard did with <laughs> yeah. China? Yeah. Well, that's an external event that is, is going to be hard to model. And one of, the, one of the, the messages definitely in my book is that churn is hard because there's so much that drives churn that's not part of your your data you you in this scenario you typically have information about what people do on your product and that's it um i don't assume anything or, or teach anything about stalking your customers you know on the internet this is all based on completely you know anonymous systems what about macro effects like uh you know economy downturn you can pre prepare to have a lot of cancellations yeah it's well if you've ever worked in you know like economic models it's very hard to build things like that into a model i think i remember from one of your podcasts joel did you work in wall street or was it andrew like one of you guys mentioned working with Joel's an economist who was worked on Wall Street. I, well, I used to work at a hedge fund in Bellevue, so it wasn't really <laughs> yeah. on Wall Street. It was on 12th Ave Northeast. But yeah. Well, I was actually in, in Berkeley because I worked at a startup that had been acquired by Morgan Stanley. So when I say I was a, work, a Wall Street analyst, I was actually in Berkeley, California for all those years. <laughs> right. But it was with a subsidiary of Morgan Stanley. So <laughs> Maybe there's a Wall Street in Berkeley, though. I don't know of one, to be honest, but we can Google so, it. <laughs> so uh, you, you touched on this before, but I'm curious about it, is that um, as a data science problem, you have a lot of historical data uh, about here, you know, here are these metrics we've computed and here are the people who canceled their subscriptions or didn't renew or, or whatever. And so that makes it you know, possible, if not easy, to create a model saying, hey, based on these metrics, here's who we expect to churn over the next month, the next couple months, or whatever. Um, yep. But then you also mentioned that you know you want to recommend some kind of intervention. Um, and, and so, how do you? Is it just the case that you have historical data about interventions you've tried as well, and it just is a lot sparser? And and so, how do you make those predictions? Um, I don't even advocate doing that in a very data-driven way. I'm what? honestly, it's because I'm used to working with smaller companies. So I, I'm not writing a book for like the Netflix and the, you know, the Googles and Amazons of the world who have. No, no, don't, 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 you, should, you should never try and limit your market that way. You're writing a book for everybody who cares about churn, everybody True. who thinks they might care about churn. And yeah, True. Don't, but, but, never like never like draw a box around your, your, your market. Like point. That. Thank you. Thank you. That's a good point. But my well, the point I'm trying to make is I, I advocate a more lightweight approach. Uh, in that you want to be agile and come up with insights for the business. And then for the most part, the business people will know what to do. If you put really good metrics to measure and understand the customers you in front say of business them. Business people will usually know what to do? I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah, I'm saying in, in terms of churn, I mean, well, let's talk for a minute. How do you reduce churn? So 
I will submit. You can try a whole bunch of things and and uh, and measure which Bro, one. Yeah, predict who's about to turn and then like show up at their house and like give them a bottle of wine and be like, please well, give them hundred dollars. Let me propose something. Maybe Just give everybody a hundred dollars. Propose something that we'll talk about that in a minute. But there, discounting is not really one of the methods, but. Well, the best method to reduce just churn... Just give me and Joel $100. <laughs> yeah. The best method to reduce churn is just make your product better. Because if your product was uh, way better than everyone else's, then too hard churn less. <laughs> but what about all the people who are like, oh, yeah, I called Comcast and told them I was going to cancel, so they gave me like six free months or... Yeah, well, Comc- yeah, everyone likes to bring that up. And there's a wide misconception that discounting is a way to reduce churn. But it's really not for most companies because you need a really fat profit margin in order to take the hit from your discount. So the cable companies all had a monopoly for many years. So they were charging everyone a price based on their monopoly. Then they still try to, but there's competition now. So there's also a competitive market price for a similar service. And when a cable company... Competitive. Well, more competitive. (laughs) How about that? So, but when the ca- inches lower. when the cable company offers you that discount, they're taking you from like a ninety percent profit margin to like a sixty percent, you know, margin or something like that, because their their original margin on your service was so high, they can afford to lower your price and still keep you. Most companies that I work with are not in that fortunate situation where they have margin to burn, so they want to reduce churn without. Um, it's like without subverting or I don't know whether is that a word <laughs> without like sab- a word, yeah. yeah, you don't want to sabotage your pricing structure. Like most of these companies work really hard to figure out what's a, what's a fair price to charge and give people value. And then if you start throwing out discounts to get people to stay, you're just sabotaging your hard work on pricing. Yeah. I like, I like what you said about the, the, the trick to keeping people from from quitting is to making the product better. And I think that I've, I've, I, that's a, one of the truest things I've ever heard. It's, and I've actually said a few times uh, before that spending time trying to do churn analysis and work on data is, is a waste of time. And uh, everybody knows what's wrong with the product. Uh, you can see it in your Zabbix logs and you can see, you can see when there are outages and just, just make that happen less. Uh, what would you say to somebody like that who who challenged you? I would that? say it's not quite that simple because that's not all you can do. Okay. And you, you can take advantage of your data um, to make targeted interventions. Um, for example, okay, the, the number one way to make your, your people churn less is a better product, fewer problems. But the, no, the number two way is actually just to make people realize that it's a great product by steering them to the good features. So this is actually where the marketing department should get involved, assuming you're at a big enough organization to have a marketing department. They're the people who know how to make persuasive emails, right? But they're not gonna try to uh, trick. Well, they know how to make emails, (laughs) that's true. Hopefully they can persuade. Well, they're probably gonna do a better job than your data scientist, how about that? I know, (laughs) but everyone hates getting emails. I don't know. They hate getting emails. Oh, right. So what the what they want to do? So these are emails to not to for new sales. So you can't like pump up the product and pretend it doesn't it does something that it doesn't, right? So in these emails, you're working with existing customers who know your product, but you just want to make sure they get to the best features 
particularly that they're not using. And that's where targeting comes in. But I hate I hate those modal dialogues like, uh, here's the new feature in the product. Okay, got it. I, I just hate those yeah, things. I don't know me why. Too. I always ignore them. And I, and I, don't, I don't take any of these emails. But the, th- the thing with churn is it's all about, you know, small reductions, right? If you make a small percentage, you know, 1% improvement in your churn, that's, you know, that's money in the bank and, you know, fuels your future growth. So there's no there's no silver bullet or you know magic that's just going to make your churn rate. What what would you say to people who want to say that one of the best ways to reduce churn is to make it very very difficult to quit the service? I think that that's a bad business practice. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's, it's cool. something that comes up and we debate it a lot. I mean, within the world of people who think about subscriptions, I think it's better for everyone if they legislate and make it easy to cancel. Because that will make, you know, it supports the market and makes people more willing to sign up for new services. But of course... And you've heard of the gym membership model, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, gym memberships are hard to get out of. <laughs> I think actually 20... 20- and also, and also it's, it's, it's almost... Uh, I, I, there's an undercurrent there, which is if your customers forget they have this service. Yeah. Then they're most... They're oh, you always, you always see the news okay. story about the old person who dies and they discover that... They've been paying AOL like 50 bucks a month for the last 20 years. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I hear all those. And, you know, I tell people. And think about all the, all the Amazon uh, hosts that have just been left running when people leave companies. (laughs) Right. Think about it. Yeah. Well, I don't try to like moralize to people about how they should run their business, but I do think if you're, if your business depends on forgetting that people forgetting that they signed up, then that's not a way to run a business. On the so, other so, hand, I'm not saying you have to remind everyone, you know, to less than the law requires, you know. So, so, so I'll tell you my perspective, which is that one of the like fringe benefits of establishing yourself as an authority on some topic or in some field is getting to moralize to people about how to run their businesses. So you should consider that's a perk. You might evolve. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. <laughs> So, so how, uh, how, how far along is your book? Let's see, about two-thirds in terms of the amount that's just written. Um, but as Practically done. Yeah, well, you probably know from working on your own book that there's a ton of revising and editing. So I'm kind of like going through this hell of like revising the old chapters before I can move on to the final third of the book. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, no, you should... You should uh, do a rough draft of everything and then go through and tighten it up because you'll just have to go back and change the, the other think. chapters just, again yeah. once you've written the later chapters. Don't look back. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. What's, a, what's, what's been the most surprising thing to you about writing a book that you didn't expect? Mm, that I would have spend just as much time editing and revising as I do writing in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I uh, expected there to be a lot. Any, any what, what are the... What about the highs and lows? Any any particular joy or pain? Definitely my pain comes when I reread what I've written and I'm like, oh my oh, God, yeah. this sucks. I feel bad for people who have to read this. But don't worry. That's like us listening yeah, to the podcast. Yeah, if you're listening to the we, podcast, don't worry. I'm fixing everything. So by the time you have to read it, it's going to be awesome. Unbelievable. How did you get hooked up with... Manning, did you pitch it to them or did they approach you or? No, I pitched it to them. I sent out a few, um, you know, proposals, including to O'Reilly, who they replied, the guy there replied to me once and then never replied back, which I, you know, took to be like a publisher's. 
kind of rejection method. Was it? Was it? Was it Mike? <laughs> oh, no. I don't know. I'd have to look in those old emails. Oh yeah. It, you can. It, you shouldn't feel shy about emailing people back. But now that you're with Manning, you can forget. Yeah. About no. No. You're not. No, Manning, up, so. Manning's cool, and they have a good method, which I think has really benefited the book and me. Um, just that they insist on teaching things really step by step with like, you know, a lot of diagrams and visualization. And it's good because, you know, I mean, you probably have this experience writing, but when I first thought I was going to write a book, I was like, oh, I'm going to write something really advanced. You know, I want to impress all my data scientist friends. But then once you talk to the publisher, they're like, no, no, you got to write a book for beginners. If you want to make no, it, I, mm-hmm. think about your audience. I actually, I actually set out. I actually set out to write a book for beginners, so I didn't. I didn't have okay. that experience. Yeah, I had to get redirected, but I really appreciate it now that you know I want to help people up to the basic level to do this for their company, and then if I've uh, got some more advanced stuff, I can put it in a blog post or something later. You know? My my thinking was slightly different, and it was more along the lines of if I write for beginners, then likely I know then it's possible that I might know more about what I'm writing about than the reader does. Whereas if I write for like an advanced book, then probably I know less about what I'm writing about than the readers. And then I'd get it all wrong and screw it up. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure some advanced, you know, advanced people are going to, you know, not agree with everything that I'm saying. That's for so, sure. So the, the other, uh, the other day there was a tweet, someone tweeted about like the best way to learn something is to teach it. Um, and so I like, I agree with that very strongly. So I retweeted that and I had a message like, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, in data science from scratch, I really learned it by writing it. And someone responded. So I don't know who this person is. They're like, yeah, that was real apparent in your topic modeling chapter. <laughs> Just like, oh, like, that was pretty savage. So, yeah. Wow. Good times. I wouldn't say there's anything I just learned from doing this. Although I guess I've gotten. Doing, I've done more with Python because, yeah, I mean, I'm not. It's that's one thing I'm worried about with the book is that people are just going to be like, "Oh my God, your Python is terrible," and it probably is. You know, I mean, I don't think it's that bad, but I'm, I'm, but even terrible Python is better than good R, right? Isn't that what we? But the, no, that, like, I, I don't know, guys. You're you here in me. You've got uh, an R advocate. I, I like a lot of things about R. Oh, I'm rethinking this. Get right him off now. the show. <laughs> No, we've we've had our people before. I think I don't know if they admitted it, but yeah, um, no, I'm kidding. It seems like that's the sort of thing that should be easy to uh, tighten up, right? Because that's basically a code review in some sense, and people code review yeah. all the time. And yeah, and, no, and I so, agree. Yeah, what's most important in my book is really that it's really a, a course in feature engineering for people who probably many of them have not spent as much time thinking about feature engineering as they should. And what's cool about the book, in, in contrast to a lot of stuff in data science, is that rather than just saying like, okay, here's your data set, now run an algorithm, uh, most of the book is about creating the data set. And there's also the algorithms, you know, that part comes. But That's I focus cool. on, yeah. yeah, really starting literally from scratch um, and fi- and creating. Wait, you're you're speaking my language now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I know your book is also teaching principles of data science. I'm pretty light on the principles and <clears throat> mostly just like what I'm actually not even writing for data scientists necessarily. It's for whoever is fulfilling the role of analyzing the churn data, which okay. might not be someone who, you know, went to 
you know, a master's degree or even a boot camp or anything. It might just be some guy in IT yeah. who got right. asked to look at the churn That's data. That's cool. The churnmeister. So the design of the book, the, <laughs> so the, the, the design of the book is to, is a real world sort of recipe book to be able to use uh, at, on the job and actually be able to apply, huh? That's the hope. Yeah. Um, so, so and, oh, go ahead. No, that was it. Just go, go ahead with oh, another. I was going to say, you know. though, one of, the, one of the things people talk about sometimes is that, you know, deep learning is in some ways kind of obviating the need for feature engineering because these neural nets will just figure out the features. Is that, is that at all the case here potentially or, or the, the stuff I, you're I doing is so. I don't, I don't see it just because in the end, what you need is to get the features in the hands of the people who are going to do something about it. So, I mean, I didn't finish saying all that, but, you know, I mentioned better product, uh, email campaigns on how to use the product. There's also customer success and support is going to get get in on the action. Um, and there's also stuff you can do about changing your pricing plan, not with discounts, but to, you know, you want to get people on the appropriate plans for their level of use, which isn't the same as, you know, handing out discounts. But so you've got all these people in different parts of the company the company and they're all using different tools because the product managers or content creators are using what they use. The marketers are using their email marketing campaign. The customer support people are using Zendesk and the salespeople are using Salesforce or whatever CRM they've got. And they're not all suddenly just going to start, you know, using a machine learning model. Um, even in the thing about deep learning, discovering features is they're not really exposed you know, and what all these people need to do their jobs is good metrics that they can segment the customers on and understand how those segments are related to engagement and churn. So going back to the metrics is like, okay, you figure out what's your most engaging feature, right? And then just measure how much people are using it. And you've shown what's the most engaging feature by measuring different metrics of use. Um, and maybe doing a regression at the end to, you know, just make sure. Um, and then, well, the product people know what to do. They know what the best features are now. They should make more like that. And they might have discovered some disengaging aspects of the product that they should work on. The market, uh, yeah. So, so let, let me push back on that a little bit because, let, or make sure I understand anyway. Um, so let's say you do this analysis and you find out that, uh, the most relevant metric is number of videos watched in the in the last month. So people who watch a lot of videos tend to renew their subscription. People who watch very few videos um, tend to cancel their subscriptions. Um, but how does yeah. that how do, how does that translate into an action? Like you don't know why people aren't watching the videos, right? Like no, you just but, know that they're not yeah. for some reason. But what you can, I mean, the question is, for, well, the first question is, is there anything other than videos, right? So do the people who aren't watching videos have something else to do is important. And then, I mean, you should try to encourage the people not watching the videos to watch them. But there's a whole nother level of it, which is just not just watch more videos, but what about the different types of videos? Are there different categories of content? Is there like a most popular right. series and a less popular series? If someone's watched all the most popular series, they're probably going to churn or they're at risk, right? But maybe you can encourage them to get hooked on one of your other series. 
So it's all more nuanced. Um, although you can just be like, oh, okay, who's who's watching fewer than five videos a month? Let's send them an email. That's that's always a baseline, you know, action you can take. But that's the thing. That's that's the that's where you're going to trip over the curb, and you're going to remind that person that they are paying for something they're not using. If they're truly, and so they're not using your resources. Yeah. They're not well, using part your. Of your that's bandwidth. definitely part of targeting, and most people do this too, which is okay. that they don't try to intervene with the most far gone customers. You'll get more traction with someone who's like a weak user, but not completely yeah, okay. a non-user. And the question of, well, are you just reminding them? I have to tell people that's an area where you should really A-B test. Is it worth it or not worth it to intervene with someone who hasn't logged in for two months or something like that? It's going to be different for different mm -hmm. products. You know, sometimes maybe your best option is just yeah. to shut up and leave them alone. Um, leaving the moral dimension out of it. And when you're, you, you're talking about feature engineering uh, and uh, a lot of people think about f features of a user being, you know, the number of videos they watch and things like that. How do you translate um, facts about the service uh, like outages and things like that into the customer? So does the customer then get another attribute about uh, how many, how many 404s? Yeah, it's, it's, it's you, that, you know, what the average time to load if, was? If you think that's important for your service, then yeah, you could mm -hmm. do something like reconstruct a time series of when the outages were and figure out how much outage the customer had experienced, you know, and that, that could be a metric. But then of course, you know, like any problem, you need to have enough history of, of outages to actually, you know, come to some conclusion about it. Yeah. Um, you could I also mean, just- Most people have a, have a history with outages. Yeah, it all depends on the service. I mean, the thing is, though, that's hard to, there's not a lot of intervention that you need. You don't really need the churn analysis there to tell you, a duh, don't have outages and people will like you better, you know. So a lot of what... Right, which gets back to yeah, maybe over-instrumenting is, is uh, maybe a wasted effort. I do. I mean, yeah. And I, I often tell people to focus on fundamentals. And this is one of my little rants at some point in the book is you, you need to keep this analysis agile and parsimonious, meaning don't throw in everything in the kitchen sink. Um, and part of the reason for that is that it's an ongoing battle. You know, it doesn't churn doesn't go away. You're going to do one chart analysis, you know, this year and then six months later, there's going to be new product features and you're going to do another one. So you can't get too, you know, hunkered down. It's, it's not a stationary problem um, that you're going to discover everything about. You're going to have to do good enough and then move on to the next round. Um, and not only that, but the thing is, I really believe that mostly the factors that drive churn are users attaining value or it's like the economic concept of utility, you know, usefulness. And that's something that people get over time in almost most services. I mean, I guess there's some consumer products where if you don't get value in the first day, you cancel it. But most products, people give it a chance and the utility that they achieve on the product is something that builds up, builds up over weeks or months. And so, very short-term things like, oh, the outage caused a spike in churn. Maybe the outage did cause a spike in churn, but I bet you it was primarily people who were already disengaged. You know, it might have been the straw that broke the camel's back um, because outages suck, 
But at the same time, those were already your people who weren't watching that many videos or they weren't taking advantage of your new messaging feature or, you know, who knows? I mean, it's different every time. So I tell people to focus on the best metrics are those that are closest to the act of achieving that value for the user. So I tell people logins are like one of the worst things you can measure because it's, you know, what do you achieve with a login? Nothing. And if it's possible, you want to... Failed login. Yeah, I was going to say there's a lot of services where I, I can't log in and so... like. Oof. Yeah, just forget it. Yeah, and the yeah. problem with that is actually it might not even generate an event that they can track, right? Um, it should, it should it, yeah. It, it if, I, if I get my username right. Yeah, it, it should. So anyway, if you, if you think you have a prob problem with people being unable to log in, then by all means. But it's again, it's like a no-brainer. You should make it easy for people to log in. The more nuanced questions are... You know, what's a price point at which someone feels like they're getting their money's worth, depending on their level of usage? Or if we have five different content areas, not only which one is the best, but is there like a preferred balance? Is there, you know, do we want to see a balance between different features? And I mean, those are the areas where you get more useful information, you know, and more traction for making effective interventions so so you're, you're you said you had a thousand oh, sorry. oh I, I wanted you're, to uh pivot a little bit um yeah uh, so is the machine learning side of this relatively simple you mentioned like regression it, does it really not go much beyond that well and most gonna, of the actions in feature engineering i'm going to include examples you know from basic models i'm not going to include any deep learning in the book um i, I don't think it's appropriate for churn uh, not with the kind of resources that most companies, you know, have to to attack it with. But so, yeah, basically, you build, you work out your features, then you can do a regression. Uh, well, you have to do some dimension reduction, which is also in the book, and then you can do a regression, and that'll tell you some some additional information about the relative importance. It'll also let you predict churn probabilities that are calibrated, you know, to the true churn rate. Um, then in, in the, I'm also going to, I haven't written this part yet. It's actually like coming up next. There's also particular accuracy metrics you should use with churn. Um, it's an unbalanced problem almost always. So you have to, uh, you don't want to use just simple accuracy and precision and things like that. You need to use AUC, uh, a metric called lift. And then in the book, I am also going to say like, okay, now you've got your great features. Uh, you've done a regression. Let's try, you know, a random forest and an XG boost, and you can compare the results. Um, and generally, what I find in those situations is if you've really done a great job creating your features, then you don't really get much, you know, boost from XG boost. A little bit. How how important is uh, interpretability of these models? It's it's everything because no one's going to use your model. They're going to use the metrics and the features that you create. The, the marketers are going to blog, ideally the marketers will have some way where they can look at the customers, segment the customers based on the great features that you've discovered. And that's all they need to know because they'll just know, oh, we want to, you know, have customers who have more than, you know, 20 videos a month. So let's target a campaign towards people who didn't watch that much videos and they haven't watched series B, you know, so we're going to encourage them all to check out series B 
And that's a nice targeted inter intervention, which will actually hopefully encourage mm -hmm. a few people to take more advantage and get more value from your service. So are, are like interaction effects not important? Like you can just look at a couple of metrics in isolation and that's it? No, actually interaction effects are very, very important. And they're the most important part of the book, really, that most people aren't familiar with. Do but you just I, create features that, that are based on the interactions? Is that right? I actually tell everyone to use ratios because multiplicative interactions are not interpretable to normal humans. But if you take two metrics and make a ratio, it's very interpretable. And I'll make a great example. This is the example I always wheel out for everyone. You typically have a metric like, you know, your use per month. Let's say it's a telco. The total call time per month is a great metric. And you'll see that people who make no calls churn a lot higher than people who make a lot of calls. That's fine. Now, you've also got a metric for how much people pay, um, typically. So let me ask you the trick question. Do people who pay more churn more? Actually, almost always people who pay more churn yeah. less because they they, yeah, they they know what the value is. They, they self-selected to be yeah. on the more expensive plan, essentially. And the what they pay is going to generally be correlated with what they use. So people who pay more are on a more expensive plan, which they chose, and they use the product more. So people who pay more if you just look at it in isolation, churn less. Now here comes the interaction. The interaction is that you calculate dollars per use, or it could be dollars per call, dollars per video watched. It's a unit cost metric, um, which is a recurring unit cost metric, which for every customer will vary over time. If you look at cost per unit, then you always find that people who pay more per unit churn more. And that's what you're expecting to find, that people who pay more churn more. But you have to measure it as, as a cost per unit. Uh, and that is an interaction. It's a ratio of, of two basic metrics um, rather than a multiplication uh, of metrics, which is like, you know, your standard statistical interaction term. Um, I guess I was thinking about things that were more complicated than that, like people who, who watch a lot of videos um, are more likely to churn if they, you know, read fewer articles but people or something like that where it's like more of a decision tree kind of thing yeah no well i don't advocate that because it's not i mean ratio metrics capture the most important interactions and they're interpretable to normal people so if you want to look at something like uh videos versus articles you could make a ratio of videos viewed per article or articles read per video and then if you do put that into your churn analysis, you'll find, does it make a difference, uh, that interaction? So I recommend ratios for all those kinds of hypotheses. Um, I don't get into anything with like multiple three metrics in one ratio, unless it's like a sum, you know, you can do, well, you can, you can do more complicated metrics in multiple steps. Um, but I always emphasize it's got to be something that normal business people can understand or they're not going to use it for their interventions, which is the goal. You want to empower people to make interventions, not just use your data science techniques and say that you've used them and you got a high accuracy. Like there, there's so, no. So would you say that like the data science of churn is a feel kind of rooted in principles or is it a field that's more rooted in 
kind of domain expertise and really is going to forevermore require leaning on an understanding of the business? No. Well, you know, I've, I've heard what, you know, you guys' comments on, you know, domain expertise and business knowledge. And I agree, it's pretty easy for a typical data science to, scientist to pick up the domain knowledge that they need. But I do think this is really a principled process. I actually think it's much more scientific than a lot of what passes for data science. Because when you create a metric, you're actually acting as a scientist. You have a hypothesis that this metric is going to predict churn and engagement. And you can do a test of that hypothesis. Did this metric predict churn? Okay, it didn't. Let's try a different one. So you actually go through what I consider to be an iterative scientific process of figuring out what the great metrics are. And there's a sounds lot all, of- all, Sounds all like p-hacking to me. Sounds like p-hacking? <laughs> I don't think so because you, know, you, you, you also know the business. It's all constrained by domain knowledge and by regular interaction uh, with stakeholders in the business who are, are working with customers. Um, so yeah, I don't see it as p-hacking unless you just say all science is p-hacking. All science where you don't have- oh, yeah, I, 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 I do say that for the most part, yeah. I, I think science is a house of cards, but- Yeah, well, I, I have a, my own perspective on this. Cause, I mean, I actually was a scientist. You know, I did a PhD and it was not in data science. It, my PhD is in biology, although I was like a biophysicist doing computational modeling. So, I mean, that's an area where we really did have a fundamental model for the physics of the system. So, I mean, that's yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe that's fine. But like my prior is that most results in like social psychology are wrong and that most results in like nutrition are wrong and things like that. Like, I don't I don't really believe any of them. Well, they don't have good data. I mean, the thing about these churn experiments is that for a typical service, you're going to have thousands and thousands of data points to, ch- to check your hypothesis. Um, that a metric is or is not relevant to churn. Um, and, it, and that's one of the powerful things about it is because you're looking at what's good in your product or bad in your product, and you're not relying on surveys. Because, I mean, surveys have the, the well-known problems that only people who love you or hate you tend to fill out the survey. So your survey result is like an average of your extreme outliers. But in churn analysis, if you set it up right, you're actually measuring everyone on your service and you're looking at how they vote with their feet. So I see it as a really objective uh, and I do see it as really a scientific process to come up with the metrics. But like, you know, many things in science, there's a lot of like art and craft to it. It's not it's, you know, I in my book, I actually use this quote uh, from Ernest Rutherford. Have you heard of him? Oh, yeah, the physicist. Yeah, he's a physicist. And yeah. he said something like, if you have to use statistics to understand your experiment, you should have done a better experiment. And that's like, you know, that's like heresy, right? Who could possibly say don't use statistics to understand your experiment? But I think, you know, there's a few <laughs> levels to that. You know, one is that he he was, you know, people back then had to make their own experimental apparatus, right? And if you did a crappy job wiring up your experiment, you would get a lot of noise, but you could average it out by doing statistics over multiple experiments. But I also think, I mean, there's a deeper, this is my own reading into it, but I think there's a deeper level, which is that um, a lot of times the result of an experiment, you can read it from a simple plot of the results 
and you'll know qualitatively if your hypothesis was right or wrong without any statistics. You just look at the graph and you're like, okay, that's clearly related or, oh, that's <laughs> clearly not related. And if it's not clearly related, then you can get into your statistics and see if it's like, oh, is it less than, you know, P.05 or whatever. But my, what I advise people in this, in churn at least, is just look for a new metric. If you're trying a metric and it's not obviously related to churn, you're looking at the wrong metric and you should keep looking. Because in every case that I've worked on, there really are metrics that are obviously, obviously predictive of churn uh, and engagement. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a systematic way that I put in the book to make them even better. So I don't know. So have you, have, you, have you learned anything sort of surprising or interesting or counterintuitive about human nature by studying this problem? I don't know. There's some surprises. One that usually surprises people is that support tickets are always associated with higher retention. Um, I've never, everyone always huh. expects, oh, the more support tickets, the. You mean number of tickets? Yeah, it, almost any metric around the amount of support interactions, it almost always predicts higher retention. Um, and that's kind of surprising. Well, not really when you think about it, just because, well, it's the people who aren't calling support that you have to worry about. Um, but surprises right. about human nature. You know, dark know. patterns that work or... I don't know. Well, it's honestly, I don't think it's surprising. People are pretty much predictable, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like it's pretty intuitive based on our own experience. You know, when you're thinking about, should I cancel Hulu or Netflix... You're thinking about, yes. yeah, you probably should, but you're probably in the back of your mind doing some calculation like, how many videos did I watch last month or how many shows? So I paid, you know, $2 per show. Is that worth it to me? Right? So people are all making those kinds of calculations in the back of your mind. And if you're a business, you're going to be very rational. So churn is always easier to predict if your customers <laughs> are businesses. It's harder to predict for consumers. But... I really do. It actually leaves me thinking that people do tend to be rational in the sense that they pay attention to what <laughs> gives them value. And Except for me, because I pay for Netflix, but I don't watch it at all, and the rest of my family watches it. But I'm the one paying for it. Well, yeah, that's a family. For you know, the, you, there's a special category of metrics for multi-user, you know, platforms. So, and I, I, I think my daughter watches. Well, wait, like I, I know she's getting twelve <laughs> bucks a month worth of value out of it. She watches it all day, every day, but. Yeah, I my wife is getting less. her money's worth on Netflix, and I am definitely not. But you know, we're as a unit. So. And, but and back to domain uh, domain expertise. I'm curious about uh, about your company as well as in the book. What um, in the book? What what is the data set that you're building up? Uh, you know, what 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 industry? In the book, well, the book combines a simulation uh, and real case studies. So I don't have a real churn data set that I'm allowed to distribute. Um, so what I do yeah. in the book is I set up a pretty, well, it's, it depends on what you, I was going to say, a pretty simple model. I mean, to a lot of people, it's not simple because it's like a multidimensional Gaussian distribution for the behaviors and then a utility model that leads to a churn probability. So in the book, at the start of the book, you'll run a simulation to create a data set and the events are labeled like it's a social network. The events are like, oh, you post a message, you friend someone, you unfriend someone. And through the simulation, I make people, you know, I make it so that they're related to churn. 
Uh, and that's what you build up by going through the book because I couldn't get, you know, a company with real churn data that I work with to let me publicize it. They're all going concerns and they weren't up for that. Uh, but then in the book, throughout the book, I give examples of like what real data looks like because the simulation doesn't really look like real oh, okay, data cool. in a lot of respects. So Got I say from like from different industries and different businesses. Um, yeah, a couple different. And so in the book, I've got a telco mm -hmm. uh, and two SaaS companies. One is a SaaS for managing uh, online reviews and stuff like that. And the other is like a BI tool. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get one more uh, case study to agree to be in the book. And they would be actually a streaming video service. Um, so I've got three case study companies right now. Um, it's really cool. hard to get case studies, by the way. If you're ever thinking about yeah, writing a yeah, book, you better budget a lot of time for. That's why I just made up my own toy data sets. It worked out pretty well, except for the people who get angry because they're toy data sets. Yeah, I had to make a toy data set for this one, or there's just no way that people could run all the code. Um, and I'm I'm pretty it, proud of how it came out. Actually, it's not. I mean, the simulation is actually kind of cute and tricky. Uh, when, when 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 does the book come out? Well, it should be in the early 2020. All right. Um, and, but it's actually already out cool. because uh, Manning does early electronic access. Oh, so right, you, right, right. You, yeah. you can already go and get like the first three chapters and give me feedback, uh, stuff like that. Um, they guarantee it so that if I don't fi finish the book, they'll give you your money back. But the plan is if you get the electronic uh, early edition, you're going to get an update every month until the whole book is done. Uh, did, did they give you any codes to give out or anything? I know they mentioned that, but oh shoot! Any... You know they did, but I didn't get it. Uh, okay. or, no, they, I well, know these codes exist, but I forgot to get it for the podcast. It's, all right, well, get, send them to us, and I'll put it in the I'll put it in the show notes, and then people can uh, can get it that way. So hey, uh, 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 I, I looked at your LinkedIn, and you were at Caltech at the same time I was at Caltech, but oh, really? uh, but I don't remember you. Do you remember me? Mm, no, what department were you in? HSS, Humanities and Social Sciences. Okay, yeah, I heard of that, people. I was well, in that, the... No, that, that's good, because usually people are like, oh, we have that here? Yeah. I was in the Computation and Neural Systems, which was is like a neuroscience group. Hey, actually, and... Wait, Joel, you're at the Allen Institute, right? Well, I was. I'm not anymore. I left, but yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to ask if you knew my advisor. He he's some head of everything there. I think at the at the brain sciences or artificial at the, intelligence. At the brain sciences. He's not. In so the those AI. are so those are they're totally different institutes. I mean, it's the same oh, okay. Allen, and the money comes from the same place, but like different buildings. They're not even in the same part of town. People screw up and go to the one is actual intelligence. The other is. Oh, that's Jack. really sad, actually, that they couldn't. That so, they don't, and it's very telling that they didn't even bother to bring those groups of people closer to each other. Well, so it's funny. I, so I was there for about three and a half years. I just left like a week ago. But um, very early when I was there, like I'd been there a couple months, and we had this meeting with some people from brain science, and they came over and we talked about all these cool collaborations we were going to do. And then as far as I know, like nothing ever came of that. And so that was like the one meeting. Um, and then, you know, when I gave a practice version of my Jupyter Notebooks talk, um, Someone invited over this Jupiter Notebooks enthusiast guy from <laughs> the Brain Sciences Institute to come and give me feedback. And this guy was at JupyterCon as well. So, um, but other than that, like, I never really had anything to do with them. We were working on like an NLP library. So, yeah, well, that's too bad. 
because I mean, my, the program I did at Caltech was really focused on bringing the neuroscientists and the AI people together. Um, oh, cool. Like the left and right brains hemispheres, as, as so just appro approach, approaching the problem from both sides. Because there's this there is this line of thought yeah. in AI that's basically saying we really need to think more about like you know people are not born or animals are not born with random weights in their brain, so to speak, that then get back propagated by you know yep. feeding in a million training examples. Their 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 brain starts with a lot of you know structure, inductive bias, or it, Yep. It comes out of the box knowing how to do a lot of things. And, you know, maybe our mm -hmm. neural network model should be the same. Yeah, I tend to be in that camp thinking that the, the neural networks, yeah, they need to learn a lot from neuroscience. And they're going to kind of underwhelm us until until we actually learn those lessons from neuroscience. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say they underwhelm us. I mean, I think this stuff, like, especially I've been working on an NLP, that the... the the things they've been doing in NLP are, are, are pretty impressive. Um, I, I wouldn't call them underwhelming. Yeah, no, it's but, amazing what they can do now compared to like 10 years ago. I mean, believe me, I used compared to three years ago. Yeah, dictation on the mm -hmm. phone all the time, you know, and that wasn't possible not so long ago. Um, but in terms of things like, I mean, okay, I'm sorry. I've been a big skeptic of self-driving cars just because we don't understand how animals navigate through their environment. Even simple animals like bugs, we don't know how they do it. And yet we think that we can, you know, make a vehicle do it. I, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, it I'm depends, right? Like there, there, there's, there's some parts of it that I think are pretty easy, which is uh, staying in your lane and not hitting the car in front of you. Like my car does that already basically, but there's other parts of it that are really sophisticated. Like, I see there's a bus ahead of me, and I know that that bus is probably going to stop at the bus stop, and so I should probably change lanes to get around yeah. it because... Well, the and, problem and, is that the self-driving car approaches those problems generally as isolated things where, you know, you have a staying in lane circuit or hack or some what have you, whereas an organism has a global representation of their environment and all their sensory inputs go into that, and then all the actions are guided by that you know, global view of, you know, everything around you, which all, all organisms which can navigate their environment achieve this wondrous feat. Um, but still, we can't <laughs> reproduce it in any kind of machinery because we don't know how it works. Well, that's my biased view as a neuroscientist, right? I'm not an AI guy would tell me, oh, we understand everything, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you know, not giving us credit. I do give AI credit for amazing stuff that's come out. But well, it's the, the question of are you actually creating intelligence or are you doing things well enough to get the job What's done? What's the difference? Yeah, I don't know if there's a difference. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know there's a difference either. Like intelligence, getting the job done, uh, 51, 50 the other. I don't, I don't really care. Yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah, we're, we're running up on an hour and we generally cool. don't like to go too much longer than an hour. But anything else you wanted to like touch on or ask us about or complain about or give us feedback on or anything like that? Um, not really. I don't know. I like the podcast. How come, how come you guys don't do it so often? Uh, and, and how do you pick the music? That's my other question. That's my real question. How do you pick uh, the music? So original, so that's a good question. Um, originally 
I was composing music for every podcast, and then that became too much of a burden for me because I don't like I'm not good at composing music, and I ran out of and I had this like backlog of like here's eight things I've composed, and then I ran through them and I had no more. Um, and so it's a combination of um, something either related to the to the topic of the podcast, like um, I don't know, maybe the it reminds me of a song or something or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like for this one, we're talking about churn and I keep thinking about all these stupid churn, churn jokes, like as the world churns or, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's that midnight oil song about uh, how, how do we sleep when the earth is churning? Turn. <laughs> churning. Yeah. Right. Turn. So maybe, so maybe, turn, maybe I'll use maybe that one. Churn, disco, something like that. Yeah, or do, oh, or yeah. do everything, the, churn, the, churn, yeah. churn. There's a season, yeah, churn, yeah, yeah. churn, churn, churn. <laughs> um, yeah. so, 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 you know, maybe, maybe I'll just use one of those and, uh, you yeah. know, dub over or, or not. Um, so there, there's no real rhyme or reason. And sometimes it's just like I hear a song on the radio and I'm like, that's a stupid song. I'm going to put that as podcast music. Um, so, <laughs> like, like, seriously, I, like, uh, I want to make people listen to that song because it's stupid. Um, the, the question, why do we not do it more often is because uh, both of us have a lot of stuff going on and we, yeah. um, we're both just bad full-time. at it. Yeah, you guys do your other shows. We've also had we've had, we've had people invited and and things didn't work out. Sometimes people get sick or yeah, or, or you know, sometimes people have customer meetings when they say they're going to record or. Oh yeah, man! Oh man, I hate yeah, when well, customer so, meetings or customer meetings. So the short answer is we're busy and we're lazy yeah. and we uh, we're not good <laughs> at like. Like I think if we were real aggressive about like let's get some people on the show and do it, we could probably put them out. You know once a month or something but we're all right life well, goes on and then we're like it's been six months why why the hell do we not do a podcast so yeah it's a, i think we're, we're every solstice we uh, we like to put one out <laughs> well i'll try to get my chapters out on a faster schedule <laughs> yeah yeah anything and you want to pitch yeah, yeah. or you know plug anything yeah, well, well, Web, I mean, website you know, twitter yeah well i've got my own blog website uh is fight churn with data.com you know, all lowercase together, fight churn with data. And then my website's case sensitive. I don't know. Are they nowadays? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, you're probably right. They solved that one. Um, Well, my publisher also has a website, of course, Manning Publications. And if you, if you search, it's pretty easy to find fight, fighting churn with data on their website. If you actually want to get the, the ebook, which like I mentioned is three chapters uh, so far. And there's some kind of discount code for it, which I failed to get <laughs> in time for this. Sorry, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, no, it's my bad. You know, next time, Carl, we're just going to expect more from well, you. And what about Twitter? Do you have a Twitter? Yes, yes. I am uh, Carl24K. Uh, so 24K, like 24 character. Ah, I get it. Um, and I, yeah, and I don't tweet that much. I basically just like, you know, just updates on the book and my company and stuff like that. But if you, you want to sell books, you got to tweet. Yeah, you got to yeah. do it. No, I'm all over it. I'm more. I'm more on LinkedIn, though, to be honest. But are you are you one of those people who like puts think pieces on LinkedIn? Well, occasionally, I you know I've been trying to serialize my book into blog posts or you know simple simplified things, and then I'll put those on LinkedIn also because and I put one on like Medium. It's like you can write the same post and put it in so many different places, you know. And why wouldn't you? 
because you never know where people are going to read. Do it. you post? Do you post uh, heartwarming videos on LinkedIn? No. I okay. you know I just keep it professional. I you know don't really go for the commodification of the the personal life. So you'll just have you to should try. To you should try it. It's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should. Might sell more books that way. You you might actually. You'd be surprised. Although I I've, I finally got my first conference disinvitation. <laughs> really. How do you achieve oh, really? that? Yeah. Uh, well, so uh, the the explanation was not clear. It's like they decided they didn't have space for me or something. I don't know. But no, that's uh, fine. There are always more conferences. Congrats. I know, but I I like to think that it's one of these like political disinvitations. Uh, they scrolled that far back on your time. Yeah, three tweets deep. <laughs> <laughs> that's about all it takes. <laughs> Well, Carl, thanks for taking the yeah, time. Yeah, with thanks. Us. It's really nice. Yeah, having totally you. enjoyed it. Uh, pleasure to actually meet you guys. Yep. And where, yeah, where are you based? Uh, Bay Area. So my oh, yeah, the Bay Area. office is in the San Francisco. I actually live in the East Bay. Uh, so, how do you like San Francisco? Well, I like it okay. I mean, it's a interesting city. <laughs> Well, last time I was down there, there was a guy in Walgreens who had sold himself and was exposing himself to people. And then the next day when I was there in a different part of town, there's a guy who was running up to cars and screaming, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And he ran up to me and said, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people living around here who clearly, you know, have challenges uh, relating to the world in the way that most of us do. But try not to judge. You know? did, you, did, did, did your power get turned off? Nah, we, we, we don't, I don't live in the hills or any of those, uh, yeah. what you call it, where you, you're kind of in the wildland uh, interface, whatever they call mm-hmm. that. I, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, in get, the middle of town. Getting electricity to the hills is a tough problem, but you know, maybe by the 22nd century, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Well, th- thanks so much for, uh, for yeah. coming on the show. All right, I enjoyed it. Yep. So, yeah, I guess I'll talk to you guys soon. Be yep. well. Little boy blue, come blow your horn. Cows in the meadow, the sheep's in the corn. Take the sheep, leave them be. Bring the finest brown cows straight to me. Keep on churning till the butter comes. Keep on churning till the butter comes. Keep on pumping, make the butter flow. Wipe off the balance, churn some more. 